Good morning. I could sing old Scottish hymns all day long. In fact, if you guys just want to do that, we'll just do that. It'll be good. And so, hey, welcome. We are so glad that you're here with us today. The question that I have for us as we begin our, our time together this morning is this. Have you ever known someone who, who wanted something so bad or, or believed in something so strongly that they were willing to, to, to give everything they have to that thing? Do, do, do you know someone, or, or maybe this is you, who has thrown the whole force of their life into something so that they, they gave up everything that they have? And before we get too awfully spiritual to start off here, I want to give you a couple of real-life examples of this that I thought were a little ridiculous that I discovered this past week. Back in 2013, there was a man in Shanghai, China, who spent his entire life savings buying lottery tickets. He accumulated a $967,000 worth of lottery tickets. He sold four uh, apartments that he owned, four different cars. At one point, he was, he was spending $3,200 a week to buy lottery tickets for the chance to win a jackpot of $448 million. And guess what? He didn't win. He didn't win. In fact, the statistical likelihood of him, he had a higher chance of being born with an extra finger or getting struck by lightning or dying of an insect bite than winning. So not, not, a very good, not very good at math, right? Or, or how about this one? There was a young couple in Colorado, maybe you saw this on the news about 18 months ago. They decided they were tired of working and they wanted to, quote, really live. And so they sold all of their furniture and their SUV, nearly everything they had. And they bought a 49-year-old sailboat in Alabama and they were going to sail the world. And so they bought this boat, sold all their stuff, lived in it for a couple of months in harbor, stocking up, preparing for their journey. And then two days in, the boat and their dream capsized. They hit a sandbar that expert sailors were aware that that the sandbar shifted, but they weren't expert sailors. And they didn't even conceive of something like this possibly happening because they didn't even have insurance on the boat. Do you know someone who has thrown the whole force of their life into something? Someone who has sold everything, chasing after some dream. And I realize these are two pretty extreme examples. These are, but, but, but these are examples of someone who gave it all up, chasing their version of the good life. What is the good life for you? What are you running after? What do you think is the, is the life that would just make you, it would make everything worth it if you just got this thing? What is that? Because here's the thing. You may not be buying lottery tickets, and you may not be selling everything you have to buy a sailboat to sail around the Caribbean, but every single one of us, we are throwing the weight of our existence. We're throwing the force of our life into something, aren't we? Your life is pointed in a direction. Your life is pointed toward something. The, the, the magnetic north of something is drawing the compass of your heart. What is that thing for you? It's different for everybody, isn't it? 
For some people, we live in a career town. People are chasing careers and advancement and achievement, and they're looking for the next promotion, and they want people to realize how valuable they are because of what they can produce. And, and so careers can be this thing that drive our identity and value and worth. Or money is, 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 I think, intricately tied to that for some people. People think that if I just had enough money, I would be happy. If I just had enough money, things would go well for me. Yet, we see all of these celebrities and professional athletes who are abs- and, and actors and actresses who are absolutely miserable, and they have more money than you could ever fathom. Jim Carrey was the, one, of the, one of the first actors to be paid $10 million for a movie. He said, I wish everybody would have as much money as they want so they could realize that this is not the answer. And so there are these things that are drawing the magnetic pull of our heart. Politics. You think that's happening in our culture today? that your platform or position is pointing you in a particular direction, that all of your hope is set in your party winning, and if your party doesn't win, then the world is collapsing and everything's falling apart. What are you pointing the force of your life toward? Because this morning, in the parables that we're going to be talking about, Jesus is going to tell us that there is only one thing that's worth it. There's only one thing that is worth putting the full weight of who you are. There's only one thing worth selling everything that you have to chase after. There's only one hope that will never sink, and that's the kingdom of God. And the question that hangs, us, hangs over us this morning is, are, are, we, are we valuing the right things? Are we living for the right treasures? We have to constantly ask ourselves that question. That's the talk. Let me pray for us and we'll get going. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. We pray that you would come in this space this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would woo us, that you would draw us, God. Lord, we are desperate for your movement in our lives. Lord, there are things that that I have been treasuring more than you. And would you reveal those in your grace, God, would you reveal those things to me and to the people in this room, Lord, so that you can gently woo us away from, pull us out into the desert if you have to, God. Uh, for your beautiful name, we ask your presence with us here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. We are continuing this trek that we've been in through the Gospel of Matthew. And, and if you haven't been with us, we have been moving verse by verse through this book since about last December, and we're only in chapter 13 right now. And so we think God's word is alive, it's powerful, it's active, and so we teach it and we meditate on it. And right now we are in chapter 13 of this book. And in this chapter, we we are hitting the third major teaching or third major discourse of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. There are five teachings of Jesus in this Gospel. And and theologians and commentators say that, that they think that Matthew is laying out five teachings of Jesus to correlate to the five books of Moses to show that Jesus is a new Moses. Jesus is a better Moses. Jesus comes with a better teaching. And we're in the third one now. The first one was the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, where he lays out the values or the ethos of the kingdom. The second one was Matthew 10, where he, he commissions the 12, and he lays out the, 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 the mission of the kingdom that is before those who follow him. And now we're in these parables of the kingdom, where he's laying out what, what, the nature of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God like? And a couple of weeks ago, Sean 
opened this mini-series up within a series, and he talked about the parable of the sower. And his main point in this parable was the kingdom is not bricks and more. It's not about building buildings. It's not about having lots of things. The kingdom is a seed that is planted in our hearts that grows or has the opportunity to grow, but it depends on what kind of soil you are. Are you good soil? Are you rocky soil? Are you soil that, that has, has been consumed by the cares and worries of this world? The kingdom is a seed that is planted in us. You have the opportunity to respond to it or not respond to it. And then last week, James uh, Hawkins came and he spoke on two parables, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares and the parable of the dragnet. And his point was, in the kingdom, there's good wheat and there's bad weeds. In the kingdom, there's good fish and there's bad fish. And right now, God is exercising divine patience, letting the good and the bad grow up together. God is allowing evil to persist so that in his grace, he might save some. That's what God does. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's, patience, he's patient toward you and me. And all of the people made in his image because God desires that none should perish, but that all should receive eternal life. He is patient. He's allowing a season and a time of repentance. And so we, we shouldn't panic then if we see evil in the world. We should expect to see evil. The wheat and the tares are growing up together. We shouldn't panic when we hear of wars and rumors of wars and political leaders are tweeting. And, and, and we shouldn't panic when it feels like the world is more divided than it's ever been before because Jesus expected this. He is in his sovereignty. He is patiently allowing the evil to grow up with the good. And this can be discouraging sometimes, right? It can be discouraging to be a Christian in a world where it feels like everything is falling apart. But the hope is we follow a God who knows the end of the story. He has written the end of the story. And that at, at some point, someday, at the end of the age, God will come and he will bring peace and shalom and justice to the world. And there will be no mourning and there will be no tears. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he will put all that is wrong right. He will flip evil upside down on top of itself. He will reverse engineer it. And he will bring himself glory and good to those who follow him. Amen? That's what we look forward to. And today we're examining two more sets of parables, and there are two lessons in these parables that I think Jesus is trying to communicate to you. Let, let me give you those as we start, and then we'll unpack them as we go here this morning. The first lesson is the kingdom of God is a kingdom of transformational growth. It's a kingdom that is moving from one degree to another. It starts small and then it gets big and it transforms everything that it touches, everything that it comes into contact with. And then the second lesson is the kingdom is one of tremendous value. It is, there, there is a present value to the kingdom of God in your life right now. It is worth selling everything that you have, giving up all that you treasure in order to gain the kingdom. It is a kingdom of transforming growth and tremendous value. And we see that in four parables that we're going to look at today. Let's look at the first two. Matthew chapter 13, looking at verses 31 through 33. Here's what it says. And he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a 
grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This is God's word to us. Amen? Amen. Okay, first lesson, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of transforming, transformational, change agent growth in your life, in my life, in the life of anyone that the kingdom touches. And Jesus makes this point brilliantly by using two illustrations here. And in these two illustrations he's using, he pulls from the two most common settings of his day, the field and the kitchen, Okay, so the field is where the men would work, and the kitchen is where the women would typically work. And, and the illustrations he's drawing is, is to, to, in a way, communicate that this kingdom message is for the entire strata of society. It's for men, it's for women, it's for the poor, it's for the rich, it's for everybody. And so he, he uses these two locations as anchor points for his story. Let's look first at the field. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like... A mustard seed. And, and the, the mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds that a Palestinian farmer would plant in his fields. And, and a lot of people get hung up here, and, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. And, and they try to invalidate the Bible and the words of Jesus uh, b- because the mustard seed is not literally the smallest seed that can be planted. Jesus says the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Uh, actually, the orchid seed is, is a example of a seed that is smaller than the mustard seed. And so the line of argumentation goes something like this. Because Jesus said something that is not accurate about mustard seeds, maybe we can't trust his words. Maybe we can't believe all the other things that he says, and therefore, maybe he's not God. And s- someone, you know, talks himself into being an atheist because of mustard seeds, <laughs> And, and, and what, what's happening here, what you have to understand is, how you deal with this is, Jesus is not speaking as a botanist in this parable. Jesus is not coming to you and making a scientific declaration about the nature of mustard seeds and what are the biggest seeds and smallest seeds. He's coming to you as a Hebrew rabbi who is making a proverbial statement about something that is small that can become big. And so he uses a common illustration during his day of a mustard seed. Uh, rabbis would use mustard seed as this, as this proverbial seed that was something small that could grow. Met- metaphors, like Jesus is using here, are not so much concerned with scientific accuracy as they are connecting with the hearts of the people who are listening. And so don't get hung up on small stuff like this. This is, this is a, a metaphor that Jesus is using. He chose the mustard seed because it's a common seed and it had a reputation for smallness. Now, even though a mustard seed had a reputation for smallness as it would, was planted, it would grow into this giant shrub that was 10 to 12 feet tall at times. Now, again, Jesus calls the mustard plant or mustard shrub a tree. It's not technically a tree, okay? Does that make what Jesus is saying wrong? No. What it is is something small that grows into something substantial, something small that grows into something 
big, something insignificant like a mustard seed can grow into something big that even birds of the air could have nests in this shrub, in this tree, in this plant. Something tiny can grow big. And so why is Jesus saying the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed? What, what is he trying to communicate here? What's going on? Well, you have to put yourself in the position of Jesus and his disciples during this time. One chapter earlier, the Pharisees and the religious leaders have just committed the unpardonable sin. The Messiah was standing right in front of them. He was doing signs and wonders and miracles. He was coming and saying, I'm here. The son of David is here. And they said, we don't believe you. We think that you're doing everything you're doing by the power of Satan. And so they reject Jesus. They reject the movement of Jesus. And so if you are one of Jesus' disciples at this point, does it feel like you're a part of a, a movement? Does it feel like you're a part of some massive movement where God is redeeming the whole world at this point? No. It feels small and insignificant and not what they were expecting. In fact, they were expecting this Davidic king, warrior, king who, who would start a political movement. Perhaps he would march to Rome when he arrived and he would confront Caesar face to face and he would set the people of Israel free. Isn't it funny how, how we're always clamoring for political power? Isn't it funny how we're always looking for kings, the people of Israel? God, give us a king. You don't need a king. I'm your king. No, give us a king. Oh, here's Saul. And then the, the Pharisees and all these people, they're looking for this king, and Jesus is right in front of them. I think the same thing is, is laid out before us right now. Jesus right in front of We don't need a king. We don't need political power. We have everything we need in Christ right now in front of us. That one's for free, okay? That was not Jesus's way during his first advent. Jesus will come on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, is what it tells us in Revelation, and he will redeem all things as a warrior king. But the first time he came, he didn't come with a bang, which is what everybody was expecting. He came in a barn. He didn't march to Rome and confront Caesar. He marched across town and he healed a leper. Uh, Jesus came humble and homeless and poor and small. He was a man of sorrows. And so this is the God that these guys are throwing their lot behind. And it doesn't look like they're a part of anything significant. And so when he says the kingdom is like a seed, what he's saying is it may look small right now, but buddy, you better wait. Just wait. And we see this historically in Christianity, don't we? Don't we see a mustard seed grow into something massive? Don't we see 12 guys become 11 guys because one uh, betrays Jesus? And then after his resurrection, those 12 are 120 people in an upper room and around AD 33. And then it says the Holy Spirit falls like tongues of fire on the people. It's in the Bible. Okay. And then after that happens, Peter who is the same guy who denied Christ three times 50 days before that, stands up bold, different, empowered. Something is different about this guy now. And he preaches, and 3,000 people are added to the church on day one. 12 become 120, become 3,000 on day one. And then from there, historians tell us that in, in about A.D., 
100, it's estimated that there were around 17,500 Christians in the Roman Empire. 100 years later, AD 200, 218,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. 50 years later, AD 250, it balloons. 1.7 million believers in the Roman Empire. By AD 312, which is the year before Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, 9 million believers in Rome. That is a fifth, around a fifth of the popu- total population of the Roman Empire when Christianity was illegal. Can Christians thrive as a persecuted minority in a culture that's hostile towards them? Everybody say yes. <laughs> Absolutely. We're seeing it in China and in other parts of the world. And then A.D. 313, the Edict of Milan, Constantine declares Christianity legal. A lot, of, a lot of agnostic historians and atheist historians will look and say, well, it was Constantine who made Christianity what, his, what it is by declaring it legal. But the opposite is probably true, that Christianity was taking over his empire. And so Christianity probably made Constantine, if you really want to think of it in those terms. And so this seed started small and then it ballooned into something massive so that we are sitting in a middle school auditorium in Bentonville, Arkansas because of that movement. Amen? Small things can become massive things when the Holy Spirit is involved, right? And so let's, let's move then from, from the field to, to the kitchen. Jesus says the kingdom is also like leaven, that a woman works into three measures of flour. And the interesting thing about this illustration is that leaven is typically used as a negative illustration. Leaven is something that you want to avoid. Leaven is something that represents sin. It was leaven that that God told the people of Israel to get rid of during the Passover in Exodus 12. Don't touch leaven. Leaven is bad. Leaven represents all of these bad things. And so when Jesus uses leaven here as an illustration, there's a shock value that he's trying to throw before the people. He's trying to shock them. It's a smelling salt to say, wake up and listen, because I'm trying to tell you something significant here. And and I I didn't really know how leaven worked uh, before this past week, and so thank God for Google. I Googled it, and now I know how leaven works. You guys want to hear? Thanks to Louis Pasteur in the mid-1800s, we know that the leavening process is caused by microbes, these little micro single-celled organisms that feed off of simple sugars in the dough. And, And as they feed off of these simple sugars, a chemical reaction takes place called fermentation, right? And, 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 and when these microbes feed off of these simple sugars, fermentation happens, and what it does is it releases alcohol and carbon dioxide and these flavor molecules. And, and as the, the microbes release carbon dioxide, that's what causes the bread to expand and grow and change. Isn't that interesting? No? No, it's just me? Okay, good, good. Yeah, I'll be here all day. So. And so what is Jesus telling us about leaven? Why is he saying the kingdom of God is like Leaven that is worked into three measures of dough. What is he saying here? Some people think that, that he's, he's, he's doubling down on his first parable, and this is just another example of something small and hidden and unseen that starts to grow and permeate, just like the mustard seed becomes a tree, and I think that's a valid interpretation. However, I think there's a better interpretation, a secondary interpretation that, that, that we need to acknowledge here, and it's this. Leaven, when it's worked into dough, 
fundamentally changes the nature of the dough that it's worked into. This chemical reaction, when these microbes feed off of these simple sugars, it takes the dough from one state of existence and it throws it into a completely new, a changed state of being. Here's what William Barclay, one commentator, said about this. I love this. He says, put leaven into the dough and the leaven changes the dough from a passive lump into a seething, bubbling, heaving mass. Just so the working of the kingdom is a violent, disturbing force, plain for everybody to see. And so not only is the kingdom this small seed that, though hidden, grows into something large, the kingdom is like leaven, and leaven represents this transforming, transformational nature of the kingdom of God. When the kingdom starts to work in you, it changes something, right? You, you go from one state of being to a completely new state of being. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, you, you were, were, he says, you were a old creation and I'm making you into a new creation. Or he says it like this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit what? The kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom here. It's the same theme, same pattern. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're sitting there doing the mental math, trying to to make sure that your personal sin junk isn't on the list, you are totally missing the point. Totally miss. Everyone is guilty. All of your stuff counts. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Man, it's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. What a powerful statement. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were once one way, and now you are a new way. You were once an old creation, and now you are a new creation. Sanctified means you are being progressively and continually transformed into the likeness of Christ so that you will one day be like him. Do you believe that God is doing that in your life is a good question for all of us. Do you actually believe if you're a Christian, that God is transforming things in your heart so that one day you will be like Jesus was. I think some of us don't even think that's possible. I think we we get caught up in our own hopelessness. We get caught up in our own junk, and we forget that God's saving, redeeming, restoring grace can overcome even your lack of faith and your bad attitude about what God can do in your life. Amen? There is a violent, bubbling transformation that begins to occur when the kingdom is worked into the dough of our hearts. And C.S. Lewis puts it like this in Mere Christianity. He says, Imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. 
and it does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here and putting an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace, and he intends to come live in it. That is what he is doing in the transforming work of the gospel in your life. The kingdom is one of transforming growth. It starts small, and then it explodes. It's like yeast that is worked in that changes the nature of the thing that it touches. And so a couple of application-type questions here. Number one, is the kingdom growing in you? This is not one of those silly, let me just ask the question and not have you think about it. Is the kingdom growing in you? Or are you like the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to? You, you are still drinking milk. You're not ready for solid food. Have you grown in a degree of righteousness and goodness? Has the kingdom grown in you or has it stayed a tiny little thing hidden under ground? Is the kingdom growing in you? Because the, the kingdom grows. It may start small. It may start small in your life. It may even be hidden right now. And, and it's in those seasons when it's hidden that we feel like, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? But the kingdom grows. The kingdom grows. Is it growing in you? And then is the kingdom transforming you? Have you been transformed into his image? Are you being made like him so that you can be with him where he is one day when he comes back? Is the kingdom transforming you? Is there a moment that you can recall in your life where you can say, I was once this kind of person and now I am a completely new kind of creature and the pivot point was Jesus? And if the answer is no, then I would ask you to consider to test yourself and see whether you're in the faith, like it tells us to do in the scriptures. Because you may have grown up a Christian, you may have been born in a Christian home, you may live in a Christian culture, but you may be one of those people that Jesus says, apart from me, I never knew you. Is there a pivot point in your life where you go from one thing to a completely new thing, and the pivot point is Jesus. He transforms things inside of us. He makes us more like him. And we need to ask ourselves those questions. Okay, that's transformational, life-shattering, dangerous, fierce, bubbling change that the Holy Spirit works into our life. So what about the, the value of the kingdom, the tremendous value of the kingdom? Let's read the next two parables. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is then like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys lottery tickets. He buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought the pearl. And, and, and so the point here is the kingdom is this thing of unbelievable value. Everything else in your life, everything else that you possess, material possession, relational possession, 
pales in comparison to the value of the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells these two parables brilliantly because he describes two different kinds of people. You see the two kinds of people here? You have type A, chase at, climb the hill, chase the mountain, search your whole life kind of person, the merchant. And then you have type B, see what happens, kind of go through your normal life kind of people. And, and, and one guy is on this, this violent quest to find the pearl of great price, and the other guy kind of fumbles and bumbles his way into a treasure. And I think Jesus is making a point here. You know what the point is? It doesn't matter how you come across the treasure. It doesn't matter how you come across the kingdom. You can be a type A, chase after kind of person, or you can be a type B, find yourself one day under the grace of God. The thing that matters is your response to the treasure that you find. Do you recognize a treasure when you see it? And then how do you respond? How do you respond? And so the first man seems to be going about his normal business. He's probably a hired hand digging in the field of his master. And as he's digging, his shovel hits something in the dirt. And then he digs a little deeper and he finds a treasure. And this is not just parabolic speak. This, this, is, this probably would have been a common occurrence during the first century. They didn't have banks or safety deposit boxes like we have today, and so people would take their treasure and bury it in a field, specifically if an invading army was coming and they're getting ready to sack a town or a city that you lived in, they would go bury their treasure in a field, sometimes to be lost forever. Now, there's an interesting moral dilemma here that that when I read this parable, I've always wrestled with, and so I want to acknowledge it for you. Have you ever thought it's a little bit morally questionable that this guy finds a a treasure in somebody else's field, conceals it, hides it, and then doesn't tell anybody about it, then goes and buys it? Does that feel a little bit conniving to you, right? And so I want to address that here. I think that it's important to understand how do we interpret parables? And this is a principle that, that's across the board. When you are interpreting a parable that Jesus is telling, a parable typically has one point, one main idea. If you try to spiritualize every aspect of a parable, you will, you will allegorize the text. You will make it into something that it's not really saying. And so a parable has one point. And so Jesus tells this story, and he doesn't seem really concerned with the morality or the legality of this guy going up and and digging up a treasure in somebody else's field. He's just not concerned with it. What is he concerned with? What is the one main point? He's concerned with the recognition of the value of the treasure that this person finds. So that's one thing. You've got to understand how parables are interpreted. The other thing is, if you do a little cultural, contextual digging, you might discover that rabbinic law states that if a workman finds a treasure in a field and lifts that treasure out, they must take the treasure to the owner of the field. But this man in the parable, he, he takes careful attention not to lift the treasure out. He leaves it in, goes and buys the field, sells all he has in order to get the treasure. And so this parable isn't really about the legality or the morality of the situation. It's about the value of the treasure. And I want you to notice, it says, in his joy, he went and sold everything else he has in order to buy the treasure. It, it was a joyful exchange. It was a no-brainer type situation. 
And I want you to juxtapose this reaction of this guy in this parable to the reaction of, of the rich young ruler. Do you guys remember the rich young ruler? This young man comes to Jesus and approaches him, and, 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 he, and he asks him, Jesus, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Keep all the commandments, and you'll do it. And the rich young ruler says, I've done that. What else should I do? And Jesus says, okay, I've got you here. He says this, Matthew 19, 21. If you want to be perfect then, rich young ruler, go sell everything you possess and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. By the way, Jesus didn't say that to very many people. Come follow. That's, that's an invitation to discipleship. Interesting. When the young man heard this, though, he went away sorrowful, for he had a great many possessions. And so it, it's interesting here that the man in the parable that we're telling, he has a joyful response to giving away everything that he has, and the rich young ruler leaves sad. What is the difference? I think one man, the first man, recognizes the value of the treasure, and the rich young ruler, he, he doesn't. He just doesn't get it. He, he treasured his treasure more than he treasured the kingdom. He, he is way too caught up in his material possessions. He's way too caught up in the things of this world. He loves his stuff more than he loves the thought of having eternal life, which is why he went away sad. And the second parable teaches us the same lesson. This merchant uh, in the second story goes off and he searches his whole life for this precious pearl, this pearl of great price. And this guy has a keen eye. This is what he spends his life doing. And then one day he finds it. He finds the pearl of great price. He, this is the one he's been looking for. This is the one he can retire on. And what does he do? What is his response? What is the response that Jesus is trying to help us get here? He takes everything that he has, he liquidates it, and he sells it so he can buy the pearl. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Philippians 3.8. He says this, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish is this, this word that means garbage. It means excrement. It means, uh, it, it, it's, it's this word that means refuse. You should, you should picture the inside of a porta potty when you hear that word. That is the force of the word rubbish. And what Paul is saying is that compared to knowing Jesus, everything in my life, everything else in my existence looks like rubbish. Can you say that? What are the things, the treasures, the other pearls in your life that are shining and shimmering and glittering for your attention? Because what Jesus is doing here is saying, there are things that you are throwing the force of your life behind. There are things that you are giving yourself over to. Are you willing to sell it all? Are you willing to exchange it all for the treasure that is the kingdom? Because if you're not willing to do that, 
then there's a good biblical word to describe the things that you're holding on to. It's the word idol. You guys ever heard that word? An idol is, is anything that you can't imagine your life without. Just take a second to think through that. Or, or Tim Keller says it like this. He says, idols give us a sense of being in control, and we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. What do you fear the most? What is the thing that if you lost it, it would make your life not worth living? And we, we immediately have this kind of gut check feeling when we hear something like that because we start thinking about things that we love, right? I love my wife. I love her. But if I elevate Katie to the place in my life that, that I can't exist without her, then I am putting a kind of pressure on her that no human being can live up to. If, if I look at Katie and say, you have to fulfill this place in my life because if I don't have you, I am lost. Woe is me. That puts a kind of pressure on her that she cannot sustain. It crushes her under the weight of worship is what it is. And we do that with a lot of things. We do that with our spouses. We do that with our kids. Family is an incredible thing. God has given us family. Family is this vehicle for evangelism and discipleship that he has given us. But if your family elevates, this, elevates to this place of worship in your life, if, 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 it, if it pushes God off the throne, if you can't live without your family, then you are missing it. You're missing it. Jesus has come to divide families at different times. Are you willing to, to live in that, to follow him? Or your career? God, God, God gave us work as a gift. Work came before sin came. But is your career occupying a place in your life that if you lose that, you lose the, the fundamental identity of who you are? What are the shimmering, shining, glittering, idols in your life, the other pearls that are saying, hey, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to sell, sell me. It's not worth it to give these things up in order to follow Jesus. What are those things in your life? That's what these parables are about. The kingdom is this small thing that starts small in us and then explodes. Have you experienced that? Has the kingdom exploded in your life? The kingdom is like leaven that works itself in and then it, ch it changes us. I'm different than I was before. And the kingdom is this pearl of great price that is worth giving up everything else for. What is God asking you to lay down at his feet? Not give up. You don't give up your family. You don't give up your spouse, but you take them off the throne of your life and you let God occupy that space. What are those things it's a kingdom that is transforming in its growth and it's tremendous in its value. Has it changed you? Have you embraced this Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, which is alive. It's alive. Lord, we thank you that, that you love us too much to let us continue uh, to walk in the junk that we so often allow ourselves to get into. Lord, there are people in this room who are looking to substances like food and alcohol and pills and porn and, and a variety of things as this mechanism of hope in their lives. 
And Lord, I pray you'd set them free. And there are others of us, Lord, who are looking to good things that we have made into God things in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would not crush our friends and our careers and our spouses and our children under the weight of worship, Lord. Reveal those idols and set us free. And so, Lord, we ask you in your grace to come and reveal those things to us now as we worship you, as we commune with you, as we sit with you in the rest of our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.